0: Uh, turn with me, if you would, in your copies of God's Word to Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 23. For the past month or so, we've been following the story of Peter and John who were on their way to the temple to pray, and they meet a man in his 40s who has been unable to walk from birth. This crippled man is sitting on a mat by the temple gate, and he asks Peter and John for alms. But instead of receiving coins, he is healed, and he is helped to his feet by Peter. And then he goes with them into the temple courts, walking and leaping and praising God. I don't know if anyone grew up with the, the Peter and Paul went to Peter and John went to pray that song think of it every time. But a crowd gathers around them for for obvious reasons. Here is this man walking and leaping and praising God. Luke tells us that many people come to faith in the sermon that follows. Not only do they come to faith, the crowd is celebrating and praising God for what has happened in the life of this man. But we saw that All of this has not sat very well with the temple authorities. The Sanhedrin, made up of the priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, Sadducees, elders, they don't like this. And so they arrest Peter and John and this healed man. They let them spend a night in custody, and then the next day they interrogate them and threaten them. Tell them to not speak and teach and heal any more in the name of Jesus. They are told to cease and desist immediately, or else. And last week we saw Peter's response to the Sanhedrin. He was basically told to shut up and to speak no more the name of Jesus, and Peter responds by saying, "Is it right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God?" He's saying, if you're going to make me choose between you and God, the choice is easy. I'm going to go with God every time. Well, the temple authorities had no choice but to let them go. They weren't happy about this, and there's no doubt in my mind that these authorities are already scheming. They're already thinking, we are going to see you again. You will pay for this. All this Stirring up, you've done. You'll pay for it, just not yet. They weren't able to do anything that day. It would have been a PR nightmare for them. Everyone was happy and praising God. So they thought one day. Well then, Peter and John are released. And we see today that they return home to their friends. To the other apostles, the disciples, the early church. They return to them and... Surely these members of the early church had heard the news of what had happened the previous day, this man being healed and then the three of them being scooped up and arrested for the night. I imagine many of these friends had been up most of the night praying for them. And then the next morning, when they're taken from custody and the doors are shut and they're standing before the council, I imagine these friends wanted news. What was going on? What has happened? And then today we see a joyful reunion. Peter and John walk back through the door, hug their brothers and sisters, and begin to, to tell them the news, everything that happened, all the details and this command that they'd received to not preach anymore in the name of Jesus. And then what happens? They pray. That Prayer is what we're going to look at today. We're going to see why they prayed, how they prayed, what they prayed, and also the result of that prayer. But before we do, let's ask for the Lord's blessing on the preaching of his word. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace this morning and the ears to hear that which you would have for us. Father, this is your holy in an inerrant word, would you write it upon our hearts this morning? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 4, beginning in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, But the word of our God stands forever. So after getting back to their friends and reporting to them what the chief priests and the elders had said to them, what do they immediately do? They lift up their voices to God. They, they prayed. We see this in verse 24. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. And, and notice that prayer here is instinctive for them. It's second nature. They hear this news and immediately they're driven to prayer. Immediately they lift up their voices to God. And we're reminded that prayer should be more, it should be a natural reaction for the Christian. Something for us to pray for. Lord, make prayer for me second nature. Some, my first thought. A friend of mine was recently telling me a story about a a sitter who's been caring for his elderly mother. So the sitter will come in, in in the mornings and evenings and help his mother get dressed and breakfast and laundry and just things around the house that she is not able to do. And the sitter is a very enthusiastic prayer. The sitter, something will will trigger her in a way, either something on TV or something in conversation, and she'll stop whatever she's doing and say, Oh, Miss Brenda, we've got to pray. And immediately she would begin praying. That impulse is a wonderful thing. Um, It's an admission of many things, namely that we're admitting that we are not in control. There are many things we cannot do, and we are dependent upon our Lord. So they immediately begin praying. My translation says they lifted their voices together to God. That's, that's fine, but a better translation might be they lifted their voices with one accord to God. Because it's not just that they were praying together, but they are unified in thought. They're unified in mind. They're all praying and asking the Lord for the same thing. Boldness in the face of opposition. If I was to ask you, what would you say the general theme of this prayer would be? It's there before us. It's the sovereignty of God. I'll warn you, we're going, we're going full Presbyterian this morning. The sovereignty of God is the theme of this prayer. It's the first word we see in verse 24. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. That's how they start their prayer. They begin with God. They don't begin with requests or petitions. They begin with God. They speak about who he is, that he is the sovereign Lord. And not only that, but he is Creator, the one who spoke the universe into existence. He is the one who made everything ex nihilo. He made everything out of nothing. You know, there are some really smart people alive today, and these intelligent individuals have doctorates and PhDs and write books, and very influential. And these brilliant individuals would say that You and I are foolish to believe that a sovereign creator God made everything out of nothing. That that's foolishness. A sovereign creator God made everything out of nothing. They have a better idea. Their idea is that nothing made everything. It's foolish for us to believe that God made everything out of nothing, but it makes perfect sense that nothing Made everything. That makes a lot of sense. That's where the church, that it's one of the characteristics of God that they highlight here in his sovereignty. That we are not inhabiting a universe that was created out of, that by nothing, but a universe that was created and brought into existence by a sovereign Lord. And they're extolling the name of God. And we see, what do they do next? they begin to quote the scriptures. Now, if you struggle with prayer at all, if you struggle with prayer in your private devotion at home, if you struggle with being put on the spot and spontaneously making up prayer, this, is a, this will be a wonderful help to you. Try praying the scriptures. Start with a psalm. Pray through the psalm with your family in in your private devotion. Any any time they begin to quote Scripture in their prayer, they're reciting Scripture back to God. You know, if you want your prayers to be more biblical and God-honoring, you can't do much better than reciting reciting verses of Scripture. And then what do they quote? They go back to the Psalms. They've been all over the Psalms in Acts, haven't they? I mean, they chose Judas's replacement on the basis of two Psalms. There was a Psalm used in Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. When Peter is before the Sanhedrin, back in verse 11, he quotes a Psalm. This is something that's we've seen over and over again. You know what Martin Luther uh, called the Psalms? Um, he He had a lot of interesting names for books of the Bible. Martin Luther referred to the Psalms as the Little Bible. He called it the Little Bible because in the Psalms, everything contained in the entire Bible is beautifully and briefly comprehended. That's what Luther thought. And it appears as though the early church saw the Psalms in a similar way because they just keep quoting them over and over and over again. And imagine if if you're in their situation here in Acts 4. You're facing opposition, uh, conflict that is coming. What Psalm might you run to? I don't think there's a right or wrong answer here. Some would be highly appropriate. The 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The 46th Psalm, be still and know that I am God. But the psalm we see them run to is Psalm 2. It's what's quoted in verses 25 and 26. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Anointed. uh, David in this psalm is picturing a group of powerful people, kings and rulers, who have set aside all their disagreements and they've joined forces against God and His anointed. You may be familiar with the G seven conference. I think it happens every year. Heads of state from seven countries come together. Uh, I think the seven are Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, the UK, and the US. And all those seven heads of state come together. And I, I think on the docket this year is the the topic of COVID nineteen and building back after COVID. But imagine for a moment if the leaders of those seven nations came together. And they said, all right, we are going to throw off the yoke of religion. We're going to throw off the yoke of God and we will be our own gods and make our own rules and be our own masters. That's what's happening in Psalm 2. That's a picture of Psalm 2. You have these leaders who are plotting in vain against the Lord. And we see that it's in vain because in verse 4 of Psalm 2, what's the Lord's response to this rebellion? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. That's the Lord's response. He laughs at them. He makes fun of them. But then the laughter in the psalm quickly subsides in verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Verses 10, 11, and 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. It's quite a picture of the sovereignty of God. The early church, they're praying that though earthly leaders will rise up and rebel and attempt to stand in opposition to the Lord and his anointed, it's all in vain. Because the victory in the end, will not be theirs. Victory and salvation belong to the Lord. The next thing we see in this prayer is that they actually give us an illustration of Psalm 2 in action. This is something that they've recently experienced. It's something they're living in currently. They say, For truly in this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, the Jews, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. I told you we're going full Presbyterian this morning. Here is that notorious, beautiful word. And I'll say it loud and clear, predestined. The early church is saying that here are all these influential, powerful people in Jerusalem. They have joined forces. You've got Herod and Pilate, who were not buddies. You've got the Gentiles and the Jews, the Romans and Greeks and the Jews, and all of them are gathered together against the Lord's anointed. And we know that they have arrested him and falsely accused him and beaten him bloody and crucified him. And yet... What do they say here? It wasn't a surprise. It was not an accident. It was not random chance. Everything they did, every sinful action was predestined to take place by the hand and plan of God. I heard a story this week about R.C. Sproul. R.C. was speaking somewhere at a church, a college campus. He was speaking somewhere in he was approached by a, a student after his talk. I'm sure the student wanted to, to get a book signed. And the student was from New New Jersey and they're somewhere else. And the student says, Dr. Sproul, by any chance will you be in New Jersey uh, this coming year? I'd love to see you again. And Dr. Sproul responded and he said, if I am in New Jersey the following year, it will not be By chance. The arrest, the trial, the crucifixion of Jesus was not by chance. From the, before the foundations of the world, God the Father determined according to the counsel of his will that his son would be crucified so that lost men and women, boys and girls, might be redeemed. His anointed one, the sinless one, would suffer the wrath of God due our sin so that we might be forgiven and accepted in his sight. Dr. Derek Thomas, in a sermon on this text, asks a very helpful question and then answers it for us. It's it's wonderful. He says, quote, what did these early Christians want to know? They wanted to know was God in control? Were the events of the last two months some whimsical, haphazard chaos over which not even God himself was in control? For these early Christians, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, the doctrine of predestination, brought them the assurance that everything, that all of history, every event, every detail, every circumstance... All the good things, all the bad things, all the evil things are all part and parcel of a divine plan and purpose. End quote. They're recognizing here that the movers and shakers of Jerusalem, the religious and the political insiders, they had all conspired against Christ, and yet for all their efforts... They were actually used to further the plan of God, which was the death of his son for sinners. God is in control. Uh, Dr. Burkhauer, in describing the sovereignty of God, says this. He says, God is Lord, which means he reigns over history, over all the universe. He is free, independent of every force or being outside of himself. He knows the end from the beginning. He created, sustains, governs, and directs all things. And that in the day of the Lord, the marvelous design which he has made from the beginning will be fully manifest, complete and perfect at last. I wonder if you find uh, comfort in this. That our God is... Not only the one who created the heavens and the earth out of nothing, but he's also involved in every aspect of our lives. I mean, we just read it earlier, didn't we, in our affirmation of faith when we read the Heidelberg Catechism. That we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And we are preserved so that without the will of our Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from our heads. Indeed, that all things must work together for our salvation. This is a wonderful comfort, as Romans 8 says, that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good." Or the hymn writer who said, "O oh Father, you are sovereign in all affairs of man, no powers of death or darkness can thwart your perfect plan. All chance and change transcending, supreme in time and space." You hold your trusting children secure in your embrace. As we pray, we remember and rest in the fact that our God is sovereign. And that in our own lives, nothing happens that is apart from his will. This doctrine of his sovereignty and predestination, this is not some cold, sterile, philosophical doctrine it brings us much comfort, and it brought them comfort as well. And what it leads to, we'll see, is boldness. We've seen them extol the name of God. We've seen them speak of His character and His perfect plan. But where does, where does all, this, all this talk about God's sovereignty, what does it produce within them? Boldness. Verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. In this prayer, they ask God for boldness. You know, as I think through this, There are probably a lot of things that I would ask for before I ask God for boldness. I would ask Him being spared from confrontation, taking suffering away, taking pain away, but that's not what they asked for. The early church didn't say, Lord, give us safe passage out of Jerusalem so we can get back to Galilee, hunker down until things cool off, and then maybe we come back in a year or two and start up a Bible study. They didn't ask that the thorn of this Sanhedrin would be removed from their ministerial side. They didn't ask for that. Rather, what did this church ask for? God, grant us to speak your words with all boldness as you continue to do works and signs and wonders around us. Give us boldness. Don't let the fear of man silence us. Don't let us be timid and intimidated. Make us strong. Now, there's nothing wrong with praying for peace and an end of suffering and safety. I mean, every Tuesday and Thursday, when I drop off my daughter at school, I pray for her safety, that she and her classmates and teachers will be Safe. There's nothing wrong with that. But notice what their specific prayer reveals to us. It shows us what they prioritized. It shows us what was, what was a higher priority, their own physical comfort or the success and spread of the gospel. We see that. This is their biggest concern. It's the desire that's welling up out of their hearts. It's the proliferation of the gospel. There's nothing wrong with praying for peace and a respite from suffering, but the gospel always comes first. That's the priority, and we see that in their prayer. In his commentary, Dr. Albert Moeller writes this. He says, Fear is often a dangerous weapon which the world wields against the church. God's people face threats every day. But as we pray for protection, we must also ask God, as the early church did, to give us the strength needed to endure the dangers that come with faithful gospel ministry. And then Moeller says this, Our mission matters more than our safety. Our mission matters more than our safety. That's what these Christians believe, and so they ask God For boldness. Final thing we see is the result of this prayer in verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So we talked about this a couple weeks ago. What do we see? Every time someone is filled with the Spirit, they begin to speak about the things of God. God. Specifically, his son, Jesus Christ. They're filled with the Spirit, and they open their mouths and joyously praise and tell of the greatness and wonder of God Almighty. But then something else happens. They're filled with the Spirit, and then we read the place was shaken. You know, there are big events in Scripture where the, the ground shakes. Isaiah's vision of God in the temple in Isaiah 6, where he sees the Lord seated on the throne and his train filled the temple, the ground shakes. It also shook at the moment Jesus died on the cross and the curtain of the temple was torn. And here it shakes again, reminding us of the power of this sovereign God and that he is present and active. All of this, Declaring God's sovereignty, talking about his power, his perfect plan, his supremacy over the nations and all the kings of the earth. It gave them boldness to do the work of ministry that the Lord set before them. And even though the ground and the buildings around them might be shaking as a result, these brothers and sisters in Christ were held fast. There's a preacher from the patristic period of church history named John Chrysostom, nicknamed Golden Mouth. That's the kind of preacher he was. He had a golden mouth. and He preached through Acts long ago, back in 400 AD, and I've uncovered a quote from one of his sermons on this text, specifically this last verse. Chrysostom said that the whole place was shaken. And that left them all the more unshaken. When we get a picture, when we're reminded of who our God really is, of his immensity and his power and his sovereignty and also his covenant faithfulness and his loving kindness, the earth may shake and even dissolve around us, and yet we will be unmoved. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. God is in our midst, and we shall not be moved. Let's pray. Father, we are not strengthened. We are not encouraged. We are not given boldness by anything within ourselves, but by looking apart from ourselves to you and who you are. Father, I pray that all of us would be given a clearer picture of just who you are, that we would see more of your characteristics and your nature, your sovereignty so that we might be comforted and assured that you will never let us go and that though certain days may be dark, that in the end, eternal good comes to all your people. Father, we ask for boldness. Would we be those who care more about the gospel than our own personal comfort. Would you use us as you see fit here in this city to do your will so that men, women, boys and girls would come to know Jesus Christ. We ask in his name. Amen.